Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Oh, hi, I didn't see you there. <laughs> Welcome back, you guys, to another episode of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, author of Lady Killers and Confident Women, and I am here today to gently hold your hand and walk you through part two of the Audrey Marie Hilly story. Okay, how is part one? How are we all feeling? Do we still feel shaken up by the twists, the turns, the surprises? I hope not, because part two gets way crazier. Before we get into it, I want to give you a little summary of part one. If you've forgotten, I know it's been a week. Okay, I have my script in front of me, so I'm just going to like scroll really fast through part one and tell you what we learned about Marie. Born in 1933 in the town of, well, technically in a little village called Blue Mountain, but it's basically Anniston, Alabama, was a West Side girl who always wanted to be a wealthier East Side girl, married Frank Hilly when she was very young. They had two kids, Mike and Carol. Marie shopped too much, spent too much money. Frank drank too much, but still everyone was like, oh, they're such a perfect couple. And then Frank started hinting to people that he really needed to talk about something with them, that he was troubled by something. He said ominous things like, maybe Marie should see a doctor. Everyone ignored him. No one listened to him. He got sick. He was sick for a while. And then all of a sudden he was super sick and he was hallucinating and his skin turned bright yellow and he was in the hospital and he died. The doctor said he died of hepatitis. Okay. So Marie keeps spending money. She gets a nice life insurance payout from his death, but no one thinks it's that weird. And other people around Marie keep getting sick. Her son gets sick. Her daughter-in-law gets so sick that she has a miscarriage. Her mother-in-law gets sick. And then her daughter, Carol, gets sick. Now, Marie and Carol have always fought with each other. Marie does not like that Carol is a lesbian. She wants to control her daughter. She wants her daughter to be this, like, perfect little girly princess. She basically wants her daughter to be her in a weird way. Carol gets sicker and sicker and sicker. No one knows what's going on until finally some of Carol's friends and family members tell the doctors, like, "Uh, you might want to check if someone happens to be giving her arsenic. And the doctors check, and that is indeed what happened. In the meantime, Marie is arrested for writing some bad checks, and then Carol's arsenic poisoning is discovered. Marie is released on bail. Some people are like, she's definitely not going to run. Her friends and family are like, she's totally going to run. Do not release her. Judge releases her. She goes to a hotel and skips town. Okay? So we're at the very end now of 1979, and Marie has just vanished. Also, I heard from the listener who suggested this two-part series, Damon. Thank you, Damon, officially on the podcast. Thank you for suggesting this. And I also want to thank Alex Taylor and Anna Telfer, who is my sister, for doing some awesome voiceovers that you're going to hear in this episode. Yeah, we're getting into voiceovers, guys. (laughs) This is becoming an immersive theatrical experience. So you'll hear from both of them. You will also probably recognize Anna's voice as she is the one who sings our intro and conclusion songs. All right, without further ado, we're going back to 1979, but we're not going to Alabama because that's where Marie Hilly is supposed to be, but she's not there anymore. She's heading south. Let's go. It was January 11th, 1980, when a grand jury indicted Marie Hilly for the first-degree murder of her husband, Frank. But this was more of a symbolic gesture than anything else, because everyone in Anniston, Alabama, knew that Marie Hilly was long gone. Frank's autopsy had revealed a horrifying narrative. He had been poisoned slowly and steadily for a very long time, And then right at the end, he had been given a huge dose of arsenic, as though Marie had suddenly grown impatient 
as though she'd wanted him dead immediately. Frank had a hundred times more arsenic in his body than was normal. It's not unusual for a body to have a little bit of arsenic in it from the soil or the water, but Frank's cause of death was crystal clear. The day Marie disappeared, her mother-in-law had died, officially of cancer, but authorities had done autopsies on her body, too, and on Marie's mother's body, thinking that someone who poisoned her husband and her daughter probably wouldn't stop there. Now, neither woman had enough arsenic in her body to officially say that the arsenic had killed her. But anecdotally, if you paid attention to things like the way Marie's mother-in-law started vomiting when Marie moved in with her, it seemed like maybe Marie had at least hurried their deaths along. Everyone who knew Marie was panicking now, wondering if she had tried to do them in. Her son and daughter-in-law were really on edge. They'd been sick a lot around Marie. Her daughter-in-law had even lost her first child to a miscarriage because of how sick she'd been. So they went to the doctor and asked, have we been poisoned too? The doctor discovered some signs of arsenic in their bodies, but he couldn't tell them how much they'd taken. Carol, who had obviously been poisoned, was recovering slowly. She was going to physical therapy to learn how to walk again. Sometimes she felt sure that her mother couldn't have done this. She'd give interviews where it sounded like she was rooting for her mother to get away with everything. If she called me and told me where she was and asked would I come meet her, I'd go, Carol told one journalist. I think that's what you call being an accessory to a crime— but I'd take that risk. Other times, Carol felt that same cold stab of fear that she'd felt in the middle of the night when she woke up and saw her mother just standing there in her room. Maybe her mother had tried to kill her. Maybe her mother had killed her father, too. She told a journalist once that she was convinced that Marie was a paranoid schizophrenic. And while everyone was talking about Marie and thinking about Marie, where was Marie herself? She was heading south, full of schemes. After escaping from her motel room and writing all those ominous notes which managed to throw people off her trail for about two seconds, Marie set her sights on Florida. For a woman on the run, she was still dressed impeccably. There were a few sightings of her as she migrated south. In one small town, she conned the chief of police by telling him a sob story about how her purse had been stolen, and he found her a place to sleep and even organized a little fundraiser for her. In Savannah, Georgia, some people saw Marie leaving a hotel with a male companion. As her biographer wrote, Men came to Marie Hilly like bears to spilled molasses. During all of these sightings, the eyewitnesses noted that Marie looked great. She didn't have a hair out of place. She was so well-coiffed that the FBI actually sent flyers to beauty parlors around the country, sure that Marie was regularly getting her hair done. But no hairstylist ever turned her in. Up until now, it's safe to say that Carol had had the most terrifying experiences with her mother. She was the one getting jabbed in the hip by Marie's hypodermic needles and so on. But now Mike had a truly terrifying moment with his mom. Years ago, Marie had tried to convince Mike to let his son come and stay with her, but his son was young and Mike didn't really trust his mother, and so he said no. Marie responded casually that, she could just come and get him whenever she wanted. Now, Mike had a second son, who was only nine months old. One night, Mike woke up. His baby was crying. And he walked into his son's room and saw that there was a woman outside, trying to open the bedroom window. Behind her, Mike saw two men just standing there and a getaway car behind them. He called to his wife, and the two of them quietly called the police as the woman walked around the house, looking for another way in. And then the woman accidentally triggered a floodlight in the neighbor's yard and quickly jumped into the car with her male companions and drove away. The next day, the FBI brought a photo of Marie over to the neighbors, and they said, yeah, that's her. 
Marie had been scraping at the window like a rat, trying to steal her grandson in the dead of night. The FBI got involved in the nationwide hunt for Marie. They told reporters that they were looking for a woman with multiple identities, a woman who would change her entire self if she sensed danger. She can be kind, laughing, considerate, and then brutal and hateful, they said. We believe she is living in a world with make-believe friends and enemies. And she was. Let's break for a moment to hear from this episode's sponsors. Sponsor number one. Okay, guys, let's talk about sleep. Rather, the lack of it. Here's something you don't know about me unless you listened to the last ad where I told you this. I don't sleep very well. I can do that thing that we all do where you're just laying in bed thinking about everything. Your mind is racing. You're like, oh, I can't sleep. Oh, it's 1 a.m. Oh, it's 2 a.m. Worst feeling ever. So I'm always looking for ways to just calm my mind down, just get a friggin' good night's sleep, and just stop thinking about everything. So I was really happy to find this product called Sunday Scaries. They make products specifically for overthinkers and night owls like us. Sunday Scaries are CBD gummies. So they help you decompress, clear your head, fall asleep, wake up fully functioning, and just stop thinking about everything too hard. So if you've got racing minds at night, feeling on the verge of a nervous breakdown, whatever your issue is, try Sunday Scaries, these calming CBD gummies. I got you 25% off Sunday Scaries. If you want to try them for yourself, visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code CRIMINAL for your discount. That's promo code CRIMINAL for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. They're freaking amazing. Our second sponsor is Daily Harvest. I often want to eat perfectly healthily, but also spend like five minutes in the kitchen per meal, which seems like the desires of a lunatic. However, enter Daily Harvest. (laughs) They make that possible. Daily Harvest is delicious organic fruits and vegetables and like smoothies and warm harvest bowls and nut milks and even ice cream that's somehow healthy. I don't know how they do it. It's magical. And it It's delivered right to your door and you keep it in your freezer so you can make it whenever you want. It takes literally minutes to prepare. There are flatbreads too, and I've got some of their almond milk, which is really simple. Just almonds and a dash of sea salt, great for smoothies. So if you, like me, want healthy food with zero effort and you just want to have it all, you can get started today by going to dailyharvest.com and entering promo code CRIMINALBROADS for $25 off your first box. That's promo code CRIMINALBROADS for $25 off your first box of almond milk, flatbread, smoothies, etc. at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. A few months after escaping from her motel room, Marie arrived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. There, she sashayed into a bar and met a depressed, divorced, and not all that attractive man named John Homan. He owned a little boat building shop. She told him that she desperately needed money, that she was just about to start a job as a sex worker, and that he would be her first client. But she didn't really want to be a sex worker, she said. Oh, her life had just been one tragedy after another. She was from Texas, and she'd lost both of her children in a drunk driving accident. And then later, her very rich husband had died of a heart attack. And she'd been so distraught that she'd suffered through a series of nervous breakdowns and suicide attempts. John thought that this charming, heartbroken woman was just great. She said her name was Robbie Hannon, and he believed her. When you fall in love with someone, you don't ask them for an ID, he said later. Now, Marie's biographer, Philip Ginsburg, thinks that maybe, just maybe, Marie and John Homan had met before. Years earlier, Marie used to send her lovers these letters about a man named John Romans, saying that if they wouldn't marry her, then she'd go off and marry John Romans. Her biographer thinks that it's awfully coincidental that John Romans sounds a lot like John Homan, And he is also suspicious of how blindly John Homan stuck by Marie until the very end. 
But this is just speculation. If the two had met years earlier, they kept their secret awfully well. What seems more likely to me is that Marie just made John Homan fall completely in love with her, which she'd done before. He was certainly not the first man who'd become obsessed with her. He had troubles in his past, a divorce, a mom who died young, a lot of responsibility given to him at a very early age, and maybe he saw Marie as salvation. When you fall in love with someone and are convinced that they are your happy ending, it can be really hard to change your mind, even when you find out that they're wanted by the FBI. So Marie walked into this bar in Fort Lauderdale, calling herself Robbie, and John was instantly enamored with this pretty, pulled-together woman with a tragic backstory and the promise of a large inheritance back in Texas. They started dating, and soon they moved in together. Other people thought that Robbie was kind of weird, though. John's younger brother, Peter, came to visit them, and one night, he was taking a bath— when Marie burst into the bathroom with a Polaroid camera and snapped a photo of him. Later, though, she explained to him that she had a brain tumor, which was why she sometimes acted impulsively. If you remember, a brain tumor is how her old friend Rachel had died, the high school girl, the popular high school girl, who Marie had seemingly wanted as her twin. By the fall, John and Marie had decided to move north for a sweeter, slower life. They settled in tiny Marlowe, New Hampshire. They rented a yellow cottage by a pond. Marie found work easily, as always. She got a job in customer service at a factory that made screws. Her supervisor, Ron Oha, thought that she was just great. She had a real pressure-packed job and was more than up to it, he said. I wish I had two or three more people like her. He couldn't have known it at the time, but his wish was going to come true in a really bizarre way. Ron also noticed that Robbie hated fake people. She didn't like phonies, which is kind of strange in retrospect, he said. She was very outspoken about disliking people who pretended to be something they weren't. As usual, Marie's co-workers liked her at first. They really admired how well she dressed, how impeccable her hair was, how expensive her clothes were. She flirted with the men and gossiped with the women and told dirty jokes in front of the Christians. She spun wild tales of her wealthy, lonely childhood and the tragic deaths of her husband and children. She also had an explanation for why she wasn't currently rich, even though she had been married to such a rich man. She said that because she had spent time in a mental institution, she was experiencing some legal complications and so she couldn't access her inheritance at the time. She also told them that she had a twin sister in Texas named Terry. The two of them were super close, she said. Practically the same person. But as the months passed, Marie drove many of her co-workers away, as she always did. She seemed to find it hard to sustain friendships, especially friendships with women. Her co-workers started thinking that her stories were too crazy, that she was too self-centered. It was exhausting hearing about how secretly rich she was all the time. And she had an unnerving habit of saying, I don't get mad, I get even. In May of 1981, about a year and a half after Marie had run away from Alabama, Marie and John flew back to Florida and got married. Marie had gained some weight during her life as Robbie, which would become significant soon. She and John were starting to fight, and Marie even moved out at one point and went to live in Texas for a while. When she was in New Hampshire, John noticed that sometimes she'd have these weird spells where she'd start acting like she was a little girl, a baby even. She would cry and babble and talk in the voice of a child. Sometimes she said that her grandfather had molested her. Was this all part of an act? Was Marie setting the stage for her next con? Or were these strange spells actually real? Marie's biographer thinks that these spells may have been signs that Marie was cracking under the strain of her double life. She never talked about these spells later or used them to support one of her wild stories. She kept them a secret. In September of 1982, almost three years after she'd gone missing, Marie started acting strange at work. She'd been complaining of terrible headaches for quite some time, and now she started telling people that she was having memory problems. 
I just lose whole areas of my memory, she cried. I blanked out a whole piece of my past, my family. I blanked out my twin sister. How do you forget your twin sister? She explained that she had a rare blood disease. It was like uh, the opposite of leukemia, she said. She was going to have to go to Texas and then Germany for treatment. It was pretty serious. Her co-workers believed her. They'd seen her crying from the pain of the headaches, and she always made calls to her twin sister Terry from her work phone. Terry was definitely real, they thought. Her husband John thought so too. After all, if Terry wasn't real, why was Robbie writing letters to her? Here's one of the letters that Marie wrote Terry as Robbie, in full. Dear Terry, thanks for the call today. You always make me feel better about everything, even if I don't agree. You are very wrong about one thing. John isn't in love with me anymore, and I don't know how I really feel about him. We've both changed too much. To answer your question, no, I won't ever go back to him. I will offer him his freedom. Doesn't matter either way to me, as I won't ever marry again. Twice is enough. However, I feel that someday he will want to remarry, and I don't want the hassle of a divorce later on, so now is preferable to me. Terry, John hurt me very deeply when I was in Houston. The estate was such a mess, and I needed him then more than I ever needed anyone. But his love is New Hampshire, and he didn't want to come out with me. Then, when I was coming back, he asked me not to. (laughs) He doesn't want marriage. I haven't figured out why he married me. Guess he had his reasons. Whatever they were, it didn't work. You will be wondering why I came back when he didn't want me. At the time, I was very confused, very lonely, and I still loved him. Or I thought I did. If I hadn't come back, I wouldn't have lost the feeling I had for him. So, you see, it was necessary. I've left too many things unfinished, and I know from experience that it can go on hurting forever. I didn't want that again. I hope that he and I will remain friends, but also from experience, I know that we will lose track of each other. I guess this sounds strange to you, since you know that once I cared very much for him, but... John isn't the same person I fell in love with, just as I'm not the same, and everything changes. I had really hoped that this would work, but I've looked back too long at things that might have been. That has been part of my problem. He's very aloof now, and I've felt these past weeks that he couldn't wait for me to be gone. I tried to tell him once that he need not feel responsible for me, to live his life, that but that only annoyed him, as most everything I do annoys him. We have very little physical contact, and this has made me feel that in some way I'm very unattractive. That, too, I don't need anymore. I had too many years of that. So much for my love life, or rather, my lack of a love life. Let's get on with other things. I'm really looking forward to our summer together. If everything goes well and we don't drive each other insane, then perhaps we can arrange something permanent until one of us goes on to something else. Terry, there are two things I don't want to talk about. One is John. I've told you all that I can tell you about that. I don't know what went wrong. I just know that it's over for good, and I'd rather put it out of my mind. The other is Texas. I will go back when I'm ready. The money isn't important to me. All it has done is cause me hurt and a lot of trouble trying to straighten it out. I know it's there if I want it. I also know I can live without it. So if you will stay away from these two subjects, you and I will have little or no trouble. One last thing about my marriage. I hope I haven't made it sound like it's all John's fault. It isn't. It is just as much mine, so don't have any bad feelings towards him. It was just something that happened. It doesn't hurt anymore. Terry, I called Julie this morning. She was coming out to the house to look at the furniture. I really don't care what you do with it. My days of wanting nice things are over. Permanently, I'm afraid. If you want to have it redone, go ahead. But personally, I think it's silly. 
I don't want to live there, and you said you didn't, and it will cost quite a lot to move it, especially since I don't want it. If you really want it, I'll try to live with it, and I'll do it gracefully. Does Emma have anything left there? She was very upset when she had to move. Before you leave, will you go through the closet in our bedroom? Bring all the clothes that are nice, and call Mandy to pick up the rest. I don't know what is there, but I'm sure there are things we want to keep. You decide. I'm so pleased that you're doing so well. I hope the cast comes off soon. It must be awful. So long on your leg. Take care. See you soon. Love you. Rob. Just look at the depth of detail in that letter. The clear love from Robbie to her twin sister, Terry. Who in the world would write a letter like that if the people in question weren't absolutely 100% real? In November 1982, Robbie died tragically and Terry was born. In November 1982, Marie as Robbie told her husband that she was going to Texas to start those treatments for her rare blood disease that was the opposite of leukemia. She flew to Dallas, but then she quickly made her way to Florida, where she started her life as Terry Martin, Robbie's twin sister. She dyed her hair bright blonde and lost 20 pounds. She changed her mannerisms. Terry was more outgoing than Robbie, more of a smoker and a drinker. Robbie read books, but Terry watched TV. And even though Marie herself was almost 50, she insisted that Terry was in her late 30s. As Terry, Marie got a secretary job in Florida, and surprise, surprise, she impressed her boss with her skills and her charm and her youthful good looks. Her boss liked that she wore high heels every day, and he noticed that she always called her twin sister Robbie on her lunch break. Terry loved telling her boss all about her special bond with her sister. She said that when Robbie went into labor, she, Terry, had felt the contractions. Tragically, she told her boss, Robbie was currently suffering from cancer. It didn't take long for imaginary Robbie's imaginary sickness to escalate. Marie called John Holman on November 10th, pretending to be Terry. She was calling with bad news, she said. Her twin sister, Robbie, had died. And no, John couldn't see his wife one last time because her body had been donated to science. And also, she, Terry, was coming to visit him. It was what Robbie would have wanted. After all, if Robbie hadn't wanted her identical twin sister Terry to visit her husband and then move in with him, would she have written her identical twin sister Terry the following totally not fake at all letter? Terry, I'm afraid I won't make it home. I want so much to see John again, and I know you have been torn between my wishes and what you feel is right, but I don't want him to see me like this. I'm trying to hold on until December, but though my mind tells me not to give in, my body is too tired to listen. Writing this has taken every ounce of my energy. But there are things I want you to do. If things don't work out, please don't call John. Use the ticket and go on to New Hampshire. I don't know what effect you will have on him. After all, we have confused people who live with us every day, so if he doesn't want you there... Please don't feel offended. You could be a painful reminder. About Mother's house, it may be the only thing I have to give you, but you understand, anything you get from it, rent or sale, half goes to John. I just felt it would be easier to put it in your name since you are here, and there is no doubt in my mind that you will do the right thing. Terry, I'm sorry I've given you such a hard time. You have been wonderful to me. It's just that I miss John so much. I'm miserable without him, and I took it out on you. When we went to live with Grandfather, I was afraid to go to sleep. I was afraid I would wake up and you would be gone. 
I've lived with the same fear since I've known John. Now I will wake up someplace and both of you will be gone. I want very much for the two of you to be friends. I love you both very much, more than anything else. If you don't upset John too much, please stay with him as long as he needs you. He is so kind, and you need a friend like him, and I think he will need you. He is very sensitive, and if I don't make it, he will feel it very deeply. I know you will want to go back to Denver, but you love cold weather, and New Hampshire is a lovely place, so stay for a while until John gets over the worst. I don't want either of you to waste time grieving for me. Life is too valuable, and it doesn't last that long. I don't want to die. I want to get well and learn to live as you and John know how to do. There is a phone number in my wallet. If things don't work out, that is the number to call. I don't want you to know where they take me. You might live in that part of the country again, and I know it would bother you to know that's where I am. No funeral or memorials. I've lived my life, and those things are too painful for the people who love you. I hope you don't have to read this. I hope I will wake up one morning and everything will be better, but this is just in case things go wrong. One more thing. Buy John a lot of Christmas presents. The one thing especially that I told you about, he loves Christmas. And if I'm not there, perhaps I'll come back as a Christmas tree ornament. So please, no sadness at Christmas. I will know and be very unhappy. My body is so tired. And if it didn't mean leaving John and you, I'm ready to trade it in. I want you and John to go someplace and have a lavish dinner, even a party. Time is a slow healer, but I know that eventually it does heal. Just keep that in mind. Everything passes. Just please take care of John. He is strong about everything except me. I love you both more than anything else. Rob. When John Homan saw Terry Martin get off the plane, he was sure that he was looking at his late wife's twin sister. Of course, Terry and Robbie looked very similar, and they sounded exactly the same, but Terry was blonde, 20 pounds thinner than his wife, and she even smoked a different brand of cigarettes. I felt they were two separate people, he said later. Their actions were different. There was nothing to tie the two together. Terry promptly moved in with John and started her life in New Hampshire. She got a job at a book press in nearby Brattleboro, Vermont, and she and John bonded over the most romantic activity there is. They co-wrote the obituary for Robbie, and they got it published in the papers. Now that her identity as Robbie had officially come to a conclusion, Marie leaned fully into her identity as Terry. She waltzed around town dramatically, going to all the same places that Robbie used to go. It was as if she were daring people to recognize her. She had plenty of intense interactions with Robbie's old friends, during which people would call her Robbie or would blurt out, I thought you were dead! It must have been thrilling for Marie to be literally rubbing elbows with people who had known her as someone else. But sometimes she slipped. She'd mentioned something about New Hampshire that an outsider from Texas shouldn't have known. And her voice sounded so much like Robbie's that people just couldn't get over it. There was more than one person in New Hampshire who wasn't totally convinced by her disguise. When Marie went by the screw factory where she used to work, telling everyone that she was Terry, some of her old co-workers burst into tears at the sight of her, as though they were staring at a ghost. Marie was extremely dramatic, asking to see her sister's old desk and so on. But some of her other co-workers were less emotional. They whispered to each other that that blonde woman was totally just Robbie with a new hair color, right? Their suspicions grew and grew until finally a small group of women decided that they needed to do something about this bizarre situation. 
And so they gave themselves a top-secret mission. They were going to fact-check Robbie's obituary during work hours. Here's what Robbie's obituary said. Robbie L. Holman, 37, of Marlowe, died Wednesday in Dallas, Texas, after a long illness. She was born in Buffalo, New York, March 25, 1945, daughter of Hugh and Cindy Grayson, and had lived in Marlowe for two years. Mrs. Homan was formerly employed by Central Screw Co. in Keene and was a member of Sacred Heart Church in Tyler, Texas. Survivors include her husband, John Homan of Marlowe, and two sisters, Terry Martin of Dallas and Jean Ann Trevor of White Plains, New York. Mrs. Homan had requested that her body be donated to the Medical Research Institute in Texas and that no funeral be held. Contributions may be made in her memory to a favorite charity. When Robbie's co-workers started to fact-check it, they couldn't confirm a single detail. They called the church in Texas where Robbie's funeral was held. It didn't exist. They called the center where her body had been donated. It didn't exist. There was no record of her being born. They couldn't even find a record of the drunk driving accident that had killed her two children. It was starting to seem like not only had Robbie not died of a rare blood disease, but maybe she had never existed at all. Finally, a skeptical local went to the police. I don't know what's going on, but I'd bet there's some kind of hanky-panky there, he said. The policeman agreed that there was indeed some sort of hanky-panky happening. He started making calls. He called the IRS. Maybe it was a tax fraud situation. He called the state police. Eventually, the FBI got involved. And on January 12th, 1983, FBI agents intercepted Marie outside of her work. They brought her into the local police station and they asked her real name. Audrey Marie Hilly, she said. Are you wanted? They said. I'm wanted in Alabama for some check charges, she responded. An agent went into another room to run her real name through the system, and he was shocked at what he found. Marie was wanted for those check charges, but she was also wanted for the attempted murder of her teenage daughter and the first-degree murder of her husband. denied the whole nasty arsenic business, of course. But she easily admitted that she'd been using a fake identity. It's a relief, she said. I'm tired. It's been so confusing. Detectives pulled John Holman into the police station and told him that they had some bad news. His wife, Robbie, was not dead, but was actually her twin sister, Terry, and also neither of them were real because the woman's true name was Marie. John was flabbergasted. They're twins, he said. Look, I don't know where you get your information, but it's wrong. I lived with the woman, and now I live with her sister. The detectives took him into the room where Marie was waiting, and she told him that, yes, her real name was Marie, and that the whole twin thing had been made up, and also the blood disease and the fake death. But she assured John that she had never killed or tried to kill anyone. And that was enough for John Holman. He made up his mind then and there that whether or not Marie had lied about a few little things like her entire identity, that didn't matter. She was innocent, and he was going to stick by her forever. After being caught, Marie called her son, Mike. It was the first time they'd spoken in over three years. Is Carol still a homosexual? she demanded. This fixation on her daughter's sexuality would be a scandalous theme in Marie's trial. But it seems like Marie was using Carol's sexuality as a narrow way to explain or even justify her own awful behavior. There's just no way that all of Marie's crimes came down to a dislike of lesbians. Her offenses were much too far-ranging, and they affected people who had nothing to do with Carol— Marie was clearly a pathological liar, a compulsive con woman, possibly even a burgeoning serial killer. She had been lying and cheating on her husband and writing bad checks and pretending she had a twin 
long before her daughter started preferring jeans to dresses and all the other things that had caused the two of them to fight so viciously for so long. Marie's fixation was especially sad, because during the three-plus years that she was gone, Carol had been giving interviews about her mother that were kind of flattering. Carol seemed to really love her mother, even though her mother had very obviously tried to murder her. Just a few weeks before Marie was arrested, Carol told her local paper that she thought her mother had gone north and outsmarted everyone. She could go to some rinky-dink little town where no one had ever heard of her, Carol said. My mother loved snow and the cold. She liked to stay inside and be cozy. This quote was heartbreaking, not just because Carol was right. Marie really did go to a rinky-dink little town where no one had ever heard of her. But it was heartbreaking because it showed that Carol knew her mother so well. She knew her mother so well, except in the ways that really counted. Except in the ways that meant life or death. Marie's arrest was a huge deal. When FBI agents brought her down south, back to Alabama, they had to run through hordes of journalists and cameramen to catch a plane, as though they were celebrities. And Marie kind of was. Her trial was the social event of the decade, and the courtroom was packed with middle-aged women who were there for the gossip. They brought bagged lunches, and they pushed their way through the metal detectors at the door, hoping that Marie would take the stand and talk about all the people that she'd had affairs with. Everyone there seemed to have a connection to Marie in that small-town way. She'd been missing from Anniston, Alabama, for the past three years, but Anniston, Alabama, had certainly not forgotten about her. Still, the prosecutor warned the jury that this was no fun-and-games gossip sesh. You're not going to be looking at a folk hero, he said. You're going to be looking at a cold, calculating, diabolical killer. In the courtroom, Marie was back to being a brunette. Her short-lived run as a blonde, as Terry Martin, was over. And her defense was cruel. Her defense lawyer tried to undermine Carol's credibility, saying that she smoked marijuana, dabbled in harder drugs, had attempted suicide, and was, quote, a homosexual. But the smear campaign just didn't work. Carol herself testified against her mother, and she was so frail up there on the witness stand, weighing not even a hundred pounds, that it was hard not to sympathize with her. Her doctor took the stand and described how Marie's slow poisoning of her daughter had almost killed the girl. Mike also testified against his mother, and he refused to look at her. Carol and Mike did maintain a morbid sense of humor, though, They went shopping for Mother's Day cards, and they laughed at all the sweet lines like, Happy Mother's Day to the best mom ever, and thank you for everything you've given me, mom. None of the sentiments seemed quite right for their own very special sort of mother. The prosecution saved their most explosive witness for last. She wasn't a family member or a doctor. She seemed sort of random. Her name was Priscilla Lang, and she had been Marie's cellmate in jail. But when she took the stand, she painted a picture of Marie that was truly terrifying. Here's what she said. All of a sudden, she changed into a different person. She became more violent and cursed a lot. And then she went to talking about the arsenic poison and how she'd done it and that she had killed all of them. She was talking about how she killed her mother-in-law and her husband and attempted to poison her daughter. She said she took arsenic poison and put a little of it at a time on their food. And she said that she did it because because her daughter was a lesbian and had been from the age of 13 or 14, and that her husband and her husband's family all sided with Carol. She said she was ashamed of her daughter and hated her for being that way. And that was pretty much it for Marie. During the prosecutor's closing statement, Carol sat at his table, listening to him talk about how horrible her mother was, how greedy, how bloodthirsty. As his speech went on and on, Carol began curling up in her chair tucking her legs under herself, wrapping her arms around herself, until she was literally in the fetal position, as though she wanted to go back to the beginning, back to the womb, and start over. 
She was crying silently. When the trial finished, Marie looked across the room to her daughter, smiled, and mouthed, I love you. She motioned with her hand for Carol to walk over to her. No, Mom, said Carol, weeping. I can't. It was as though Marie didn't understand the gravity of what she had done. She thought that a charming smile and a little wave of her hand would bring her daughter running right back to her. The jury convicted Marie of both attempted murder and murder. The judge sentenced her to life. On June 9th, 1983, Marie was sent to prison, where she proceeded to plot her escape. In the meantime, everyone who had known Marie thought back to times when they'd had a stomachache or a strange bout of vomiting, and they wondered, was I next? Was she trying to do me in? There was good reason for this citywide paranoia. Marie probably had been trying to kill other people. Years ago, one of Carol's little friends died at the age of 11. Her death came out of nowhere. She was healthy, and then she was suddenly sick, and three days later she was dead. Doctors called it a virus and heart inflammation. But her mother had always been confused about how quickly her girl had fallen ill. Now that Marie was a convicted murderer, the little girl's family writhed in agony. Their daughter had eaten at Marie's house plenty of times. Finally, they decided to do an exhumation, and the autopsy revealed that her body had some arsenic in it, but not enough to be considered abnormal. This was the same result as the autopsies done on Marie's mom and her mother-in-law. No one could say for sure if she'd tried to kill all of those people or if she'd caused her daughter-in-law to miscarry. But you couldn't help wondering. Maybe she did. Maybe she did. After two years in prison, the charming, ever-convincing Marie had her status changed to a minimum security prisoner. This meant that she could start leaving the prison on fun little outings. Never mind that multiple guards had reported multiple times that Marie was plotting an escape. Marie befriended the prison warden over letters, and she would write outraged notes saying, Escape? Me? I can't believe the slander. Soon enough, she was taking eight-hour trips outside the prison, totally unsupervised. She always came back, and she often wrote to the warden, thanking her for the privilege and promising never to abuse it. Soon enough, she was given the next level of freedom, the ability to leave prison unsupervised for three whole days. She walked out on February 19, 1987, to meet her husband. John Homan had remained faithful to Marie for all these years. He visited her in prison, and he told reporters that she was a good person, that she was driven only by love, that she was totally innocent. He lived at a hotel in Anniston, just to be near to her, and he had started hinting that Marie had been framed by a bunch of Anniston's Eastsiders, the rich folks who lived in mansions, the ones that Marie had longed to join ever since she was a child. And now, husband and wife were reunited. They spent most of the weekend in John's hotel room. On Sunday morning, the day Marie was supposed to go back to prison, they made plans to get breakfast at a Waffle House. Marie sent John along to the Waffle House and told him that she wanted to visit her parents' graves first. At the Waffle House, John waited patiently. He was always waiting patiently for Marie. But she never showed up. Back in his hotel room, he found Marie's final letter. Dear John, I hope you will be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It will be best for everybody. We'll be together again. Please give me an hour to get out of town. Destroy this note.
Decades later, Mike was giving a rare interview. He admitted that he had been working on a book about his mother for years, and he was looking for a publisher. It was 600 pages. He said that it would be dedicated to his sister if he ever managed to get it published. She went through more than anybody else, he declared. It shows an incredible strength and persistence of character that she's still standing. For 30 years, Carol had worked at the Anniston Army Depot, a facility that made army vehicles and stored chemical weapons. And then she retired. She didn't think much about her mom anymore. She thought more about her brother's family. He had kids, even grandkids now. Carol had taken many stances over the years in interviews. My mother is innocent. My mother is guilty. My mother is troubled. I still love my mother. But in what seems to be her final interview, given in 2012, she said that she didn't think much about her mother's crimes anymore. She said, It might as well be California. That's how far away it seems. It's just something that happened a long time ago. This distancing is something that Carol and Mike did for years, even when their mother was still in their lives. It seems like it was the only way the two of them could ever manage to survive. They just refused to think about certain things. There were certain questions that they would never ask. When Carol visited her mother in prison, she never, ever asked her why. Why did you try to kill me, Mom? Maybe Carol knew it was a futile question because Marie never told the truth. Or maybe Carol knew that whatever the answer was, whether it was money or because you're a lesbian or because I couldn't control you or because I couldn't control myself, it was something horrible, something that Carol would simply rather not know. When Marie Hilly vanished on the Sunday when she was supposed to meet her husband at the Waffle House and then return herself to jail, people were shocked, but not all that surprised. Of course she'd made a run for it. This was Marie we're talking about. Four days later, on February 26, 1987, a woman named Sue Craft saw a terrifying sight. There was a filthy, soaking wet woman crawling across her neighbor's back porch. The woman was trying to get inside, but she couldn't seem to figure out how door handles worked. She could barely talk. It sounded like her tongue was swollen inside her mouth. Her hands were purple, and one of the fingers was crooked. She seemed delirious. She'd lost a shoe and was trying to put it back on, but she couldn't manage to do it. Sue ran and got another neighbor, and the two of them asked the woman what her name was. Sellers, said the woman. She slurred that her car had broken down. I walked part of the way and crawled part of the way, she said. Sue Craft had known Marie Hilly her entire life. They grew up a block apart. They went to the same schools. But this filthy, shivering woman was nothing like the Marie Hilly that Sue had known, the sophisticated lady who never had a hair out of place. Sue and her friend called the police and covered the woman with a piece of plastic. The policeman who arrived thought that he was dealing with someone who was drunk. It took him a while to realize that this was Marie Hilly herself, the fugitive, and that she was suffering from hypothermia. She'd been out in the cold and freezing rain for the past four days. Her body temperature had plummeted to 81 degrees. She began convulsing and was rushed to the hospital. Doctors worked for three hours to save her, but it was too late. She died at 5.06 p.m. People could not believe that glamorous, competent Marie had met such an infamous end. It's unbelievable, said the district attorney. This goes against everything she's done in the past. The biggest escape artist in this area in 10 years. And what does she do? She ended up crawling around in the woods. 
People speculated that maybe Marie had had a plan, but that it had fallen through. Maybe she'd thought that someone would help her, an old lover, perhaps. And maybe her plan had failed and she'd ended up on her hands and knees in the cold woods, slowly losing her mind. It just didn't seem possible that Marie would run away without an elaborate plan in place, without every hair in place. But was it actually so unbelievable? Marie hadn't ended up in the middle of nowhere. When she was found by an old classmate, she was only a mile away from the house where she grew up. Maybe in her last hallucinatory moments, Marie was trying to go back to the beginning, back to a time when she took tap dancing lessons and her mom filled their refrigerator with lovely foods, a time when her world was small and safe and she was the center of it. She had grown up and constructed a terrible world of lies and secrets, and she had destroyed everyone that she said she loved. Maybe, as she crawled on her hands and knees through the freezing rain of her childhood town, she was trying to find her way home. We reached the end of our Maria Hilly story. I feel that we have been on a journey together, and I'm sort of even sad that it's ending, even though I don't know if any of us could deal with a third part of Marie's, shall we say, antics, quote-unquote, crimes, horrors, disguises. What do you think of Marie? Please tell me. You know I always want to hear your take on these ladies. You can email me at criminalbroads at gmail.com. I forgot my email for a second. Or Instagram.com slash criminal broads, where I'll be putting photos of this second half of Marie's life. So you'll see Terry and her blonde hair. I'm also going to show you some photos of Carol in the courtroom. And now I don't mean to minimize the absolute horror of her experience of having to be in the courtroom with a mother who's being tried for trying to kill her. But her 80s courtroom outfit is really great. She looks great. Also, oh, yeah. Hire Alex Taylor and Anna Telfer for all your voiceover needs. Obviously, you can tell that they are both amazing actresses, and you haven't even seen them on screen yet. You just heard their voices. So they're both amazing. And a thank you to this episode's patrons as well, Eliza L. and Regina AA. Woo, thank you. Thank you, ladies, so much. And, oh, a little preview of next week's episode. So, do you remember when we met Sister Eli and we talked about wrongful convictions and plea deals? Sorry, we didn't talk so much about wrongful convictions. We talked about plea deals, the coercive nature of them, and the system, etc. And we ended on a hopeful note, and I had that quote from our ACLU lawyer best friend talking about how we should pay attention to prosecutor races and if we can vote in prosecutors who are really going to do things to make the criminal justice system a better one, a less burdened one, a fairer one, a more just system, we should vote for these people. Samil, the lawyer, said that these races can be decided by a few thousand votes. So it's exciting for me, the thought of getting involved, because it's like, oh, we can actually make a difference here. Sometimes it's hard to think that you're going to make a difference in like a presidential election or something like that, where you're just one person and you're in a blue state or a red state and whatever. It feels like it doesn't really matter. It matters. But these races, your vote weighs a lot more, I guess I'm saying. So anyway, next episode, we're going to hear from a fabulous broad who is running for the Manhattan District Attorney job. So this is a huge job. I can't overstate what a big job this is. I described it on Instagram as basically being the criminal justice influencer for the entire country because everyone looks to the Manhattan DA to think like, hmm, what are they doing in New York? Hmm, oh, they've decriminalized sex work. Interesting. Oh, they're trying to do this. Maybe we'll do that too. So it's really important we get a person in that office who is great. And it's also a job they're up for re-election every four years, but there's no term limit. So you could 
be in that job for 150 years if you lived that long. And if you're a terrible person, that's 150 years of terrible policies and terrible prosecution. So it's important, is my point. So I thought it important that we bring a broad on the podcast to pitch herself to us. And if you don't live in New York, it's still important to follow this race, and there's still a lot of ways you can get involved. So next week, we're going to hear from Eliza Orleans, who is awesome, and I'm categorizing her as a crime-fighting broad, and you will love meeting her. If you want to know more about her before the episode, you can go to her website, elizaorleans.com, and get a little preview. All right. Love you all. See you back here next week. After that, we have more stories. It's going to be a good spring. Stay safe. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.